previously on the Global Hemophilia Report. It is not the Tsar, but the upstart Rasputin who governs Russia. And he states openly that the Tsar needs him even more than the Tsarina. The Tsar has lost all respect. And the Tsarina declares that it is only thanks to Rasputin's prayers that the Tsar and their son are alive and well. The fate of the Romanov Empire was in grave danger. Hello, listeners. This is Patrick James Lynch, executive producer of the Global Hemophilia Report. Welcome to part two of our series on Hemophilia B. We'll return to the story of Alexei Nikolovich, Tsarevich of Russia, and how Hemophilia B forever shaped European history a little bit later in the episode. But before we have our dessert, first, we need to eat our vegetables. So let's talk about science. Lawrence leads the way right after this quick word from Sanofi. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. So far, we've mainly focused on the impact of hemophilia being men. Well, what about women? girls, and people with the potential to menstruate. How are they affected? As we unpacked in episode 6, biological females who carry the factor 8 or factor 9 gene can experience similar bleeding symptoms to their biological male counterparts, while also dealing with the physical and psychosocial challenges associated with the potential for heavy menstrual bleeding, together with pregnancy-related and postpartum hemorrhage all the while facing implicit and explicit gender bias and discrimination in accessing quality healthcare. When it comes to women, girls, and those with the potential to menstruate, who genetically carry or are affected by haemophilia B, they are likely to be underrepresented in any study or discussion of both haemophilias. It is estimated that there are three factor nine carriers, some of whom are symptomatic, for every affected male. This is purely an estimate rather than evaluating prevalence, because non-obligate asymptomatic carriers with normal factor IX levels, i.e. individuals who may be unaware of their carrier status and are clinically unaffected, are likely to remain undiagnosed. What's especially concerning is the delay in diagnosis for even very symptomatic females, with consequences for both clinical care and prenatal diagnosis. In one national US study, Age at diagnosis for severely affected haemophilia girls was a median of 8.5 months, six months later than severe haemophilia males. This discrepancy increased for moderate females with a median delay of 34 months from the time of the first bleeding manifestation. Further complicating the clinical picture of women, girls, and those with the potential to menstruate who carry a pathogenic mutation in the factor IX gene is the absence of fidelity in the genotype-phenotype correlation. The question about how to predict bleeding in these patients, I think, is the most urgent one of our time. Dr. Bethany Samuelson-Bano is an adult hematologist and assistant professor of medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, in the US. 
Dr. Samuel Simbano's research and clinical focus is primarily on people with the ability to menstruate and that can become pregnant living with bleeding disorders. I don't think we have good data looking at genotype-phenotype correlation in hemophilia B. There's a little bit in hemophilia A, but I think it's going to be more complex than a genotype can help us with. There are probably a lot of other factors that go into bleeding. Patients may have other mild disorders of coagulation that we just don't understand yet. It's very complicated, and I think it's going to be more than any one specific thing in terms of predicting the bleeding, unfortunately. You may recall Brian Amani referencing the B Hero studies, or for what it's worth, the Bridging Haemophilia B Experiences Results and Opportunities into Solutions initiative. This was launched within the US in an effort to address specific gaps in the understanding of the psychosocial impact of mild, moderate and severe factor IX deficiency on affected adults and caregivers of children with the condition including affected women and caregivers of girls living with haemophilia. Among the 116 mothers who participated in the study as caregivers, over a quarter reported experiencing some bleeding symptoms, mainly to do with bruising and heavy periods. Also, 62% of mothers reported taking factor IX replacement clotting factor or another agent for bleeding at some time in their life while more than four-fifths weren't aware if their factor IX levels had ever been checked. Furthermore, of the 299 adults living with haemophilia B, women, accounting for 29%, were more likely than men to self-report factor IX-associated comorbidities of arthritis and anxiety and or depression, as well as greater pain severity. It's little surprise that women more commonly experience difficulties with accessing care compared to men too. So, what should the next steps be regarding research for this subset of the Haemophilia B community? Great question. So, I think, again, the most important one is to see if we can predict who is going to bleed. That's what we really need the most data on, because many of these patients may do fine without any bleeding symptoms ever, and they don't really need to have a lot of treatment or be sucked into hematology care, while other patients may go for years without noticing the bleeding symptoms. We also need data around goal factor levels in this population, and specifically around delivery. Hemophilia B, in contrast to hemophilia A, doesn't actually correct with pregnancy. Factor 8 goes up in pregnancy, factor 9 does not. Most of my patients who are quote-unquote carriers of hemophilia A, their factor 8 level normalizes around the time of delivery, and they may have more bleeding after, but they generally do fine during delivery. That's not true with factor 9, and we don't know what the goal is. So, um, you know, with von Willebrand's disease, which is, is sort of similar, there's a lot of discussion about whether the levels, the cutoffs we've had in the past, which is usually about 50%, whether it be von Willebrand factor, factor eight, or factor nine, if that's really enough. We know that even patients who do get correction to above 50% around the time of delivery still may have increased bleeding. So I think looking to that specifically, and factor levels in surgery and bleeds in general, we don't really understand how we should be managing bleeds in these patients. Certainly there's a lot of other research that, that could potentially be done on pain and mental health and things like that. These are really important questions. Clinical social worker and mental health professional Kathleen Schnur. Women and those with the potential to menstruate are underrepresented and tend to put off their own medical treatment or dismiss their own symptoms. Maybe it's time, maybe in their family, 
people are like, oh, this is just the way it is. Or maybe they brought it up passively to a medical professional and it was minimized. So if you're suffering, which sometimes women do, they don't bring it up until it is so impactful to their quality of life. And at that point, if you are in pain or you're bleeding and your iron's low and a lot of these contributing factors, it's going to impact your mental health. With pain and mental health specific to women, there's not a lot of research. The only research that's out there says that there's not a lot of women accounted for when they're doing research in pain. Women have different types of pain. Pelvic pain is a very, very different type of pain. They're needs to be more research. We should be listening to them and documenting it so we can further help them down the road. We need to do a better job. Dr. Samuelson Banai. We know that the fact that historically the medical system has not believed these women who have symptoms is obviously a huge contributor to that. I'm hopeful that we're already making progress, but I think there's just a lot that we don't understand about these folks as a whole. There's enough of a difference between men with the disease and women with the disease that the answer isn't necessarily to lump everybody together in the same study, but to make sure that we're paying as much attention to women, perhaps in their own studies, as we are to men in their own studies. Obviously, when they're candidates for the new novel studies, we want to include them there, but I don't want them to be excluded from research just because they're not kind of fitting into the design for those studies, which is determined by the underlying disease. For more on women, girls, and people with the potential to menstruate, living with haemophilia and inherited bleeding disorders in general, please check out episode six, where we address the broader need for radical social change and economic emancipation of women to be liberated from thousands of years of male oppression together with the struggles of trans and gender diverse persons and its relation to equitable healthcare. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. We will now turn to the penultimate topic of this episode, one that justifies a sense of cautious optimism for the Haemophilia B community, novel and emerging therapies. An overview of the therapeutic landscape for Haemophilia B was first provided in episode two of the Global Haemophilia Report. So do take a listen for yourself or revisit the program if you wish to. We're going to build on the discussion in episode two, starting with extended half-life, or EHL recombinant factor concentrates. Three EHL factor nine products are licensed for adults and in some parts of the world for children as well. Unlike the very modest gains in the half-life of EHL factor eight, half-life meaning the time it takes for the concentration of the drug in the plasma or the total amount in the body, to be reduced by 50%, 
EHL Factor 9 has improved the half-life of standard Factor 9 replacement three to four-fold above the average 24 hours. As such, prophylactic infusion regimens have been extended to frequencies of every 7 to 14 days. Indirect data from Phase 2-3 studies in adults suggest a substantial decrease in ABR when these EHL Factor 9 agents are used prophylactically rather than on demand. A long-term follow-up study of one product also demonstrated improvement in pain and physical functioning. The uptake of EHL therapies appears to be geographically variable. This is despite the considerable improvement in pharmacokinetics, defined as the study of the time course of drug absorption, distribution, metabolism and excretion in the body, together with the reduced infusion burden and the demonstrated benefit in both clinical outcomes and health economics. Let's hear from our co-advisors to this episode, Professor Young Astermark and Dr. Amy Shapiro. The extended half-life molecules should be the ones that was mainly used for nine because they can so much improve treatment and increase the troughs levels. Meaning the lowest level of clotting factor before the next infusion. So protect the patients even better. Of course, that means that they will have less peaks over the week. Maybe some patients trust those peaks in Sweden, for example, there are patients that are really, they trust their treatment that they have been a little bit hard to convince. But basically, it's possible with these extended half-life molecules to really improve treatments. We heard earlier about how the Factor 9 protein largely distributes to a space outside of the plasma compartment, known as the extravascular space. Well, trough levels only measure Factor 9 in the plasma and don't account for Factor 9 that distributes into the extravascular space, meaning that directing treatment based solely on the plasma levels of administered Factor 9 or targeted trough level may not provide sufficient protection from bleeds. Although clinical trials have not directly compared EHL Factor 9 products, the individual trials have shown a broad range of trough levels and a narrow range of bleed rates. Dr. Shapiro picks this up. I think it's interesting. There have been published observations that with some extended half-life factor nine concentrates that they have a very good trough level before the next infusion, yet breakthrough bleeding has occurred. I think it needs more evaluation and a larger patient base to really understand and to validate the finding. There have been hypotheses that perhaps the distribution of that particular protein due to its modifications may be somewhat different than others. It seems to be a reasonable one, but it is a hypothesis. One yeah. point to what Jan said that I think is interesting is when you have factor nine antigen that may be binding to its intrinsic binding sites, even if the protein itself is not functional or as functional as it should, I don't know in factor nine for all of these mutations either what's true or not true in terms of binding affinity. But go ahead, Jan. I mean, to sum up, I think that just that regarding prophylaxis and treatment with factor concentrates, we need to know more here. And maybe we need to better individualize treatment in the future based on the mutation of that patient and whether there are antigen or not. Maybe also that would be an impact on the extended half-life molecules, as you said, because what's clear is that they differ. The question is, we don't know exactly what that means also for this distribution. In 2017, 
all people living with severe haemophilia B in Ireland were switched to EHL factor 9 prophylaxis. A year later, Ireland became the first country in Europe to switch an entire population undergoing treatment from conventional short-acting therapies to EHLs for both haemophilias. Brian Amani explains. Well, there was only one recombinant now in the market for many years. The first time that haemophilia B overtook haemophilia A in terms of therapeutic advances was with extended half-life factors because for the first time, the half-life extension with EHL factor 9 was significantly greater than with factor 8. In Ireland, we switched all of the haemophilia B population from standard to extended half-life products three or four years ago. We switched the entire population. The switch was actually a very smooth transition because it was very obvious to the people with haemophilia that they were being moved to a better product. With extended half-life factor 8, you can either have a lower infusion frequency or a higher trough. With extended half-life factor 9, you can have both. Typically, they were able to move from an infusion frequency of twice a week to once a week or once every 10 days or even once every two weeks, and their troughs increased to a minimum of 8%. So we effectively now have a haemophilia B population in Ireland where all of those with severe haemophilia B, because of their treatment, are operating as mild haemophilia B. We had no real reluctance in terms of the switch and certainly it also meant that the small number of people with severe haemophilia B who previously did not want to take prophylaxis because perhaps of infusion frequency or poor veins, they're all now on prophylaxis. And the outcomes have been very good. We've seen a significant decrease in the median annual bleed rate from 3.5 to 1.8. We've seen a significant decrease in chronic pain. We've seen 68% of patients reporting better well-being in their life. We've also been able to reduce the number of units of factor 9, obviously because of the half-life extension. Another category of therapies being developed for both haemophilia A and B and those with inhibitors aim to rebalance the clotting cascade and potentially circumvent the short half-life recombinant factors, intravenous administration, and the risk of inhibitor development. These include anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitor, or anti-TFPI for short, and the targeting of antithrombin, both of which can be delivered subcutaneously. For a 101 on the clotting cascade, and to understand how these particular therapies are manipulating the balance of pro- and anticoagulant proteins, Again, check out episode two, where Patrick uses a handy basketball analogy to distill this very complex chemical process. Professor Astermark and Dr. Shapiro summarise. For the new molecules, it's promising. And I think definitely we need new agents for haemophilia B. For example, for the anti-TFPI that's now there, it has been some projects that have been closed down due to thrombotic issues, but... Basically, if you try to add something to rebalance the coagulation system and you somehow produce thrombin in an amount that gets closer to what's normal, maybe you would expect that you might run into some concerns also that some patients could actually have a thrombotic episode for some reasons if there are additional things to that. I agree, Jan. They are a little frightening in some regards in the sense of it's not as well controlled hemostatic rebalancing. We have experience with one of the anti-TFPI agents. And one thing to notice, not all anti-TFPI agents are the same as evidenced by the fact that some agents have induced thrombotic episodes more frequently than others. It depends what Kunst domain they're targeted against and how that molecule works. 
despite the issues with elevated D-dimers that you see in these patients, which denotes the ongoing thrombin generation that these patients experience, even when they're not bleeding on these agents, our outcomes for the patients on these agents have been excellent. Dr. Shapiro was describing structural areas within the TFPI protein that play major but different roles in inactivating the factor 7a factor 10 complex in the clotting cascade. By blocking these sites from doing their job, the anti-TFPI antibody creates more clotting activity in the blood. Furthermore, not all the anti-TFPI products in clinical trials are the same in regard to which domains are targeted, which may determine whether hemostasis is actually rebalanced or whether it creates too much clotting activity and a tendency to thrombosis, as has been the case for one product for which the trial was discontinued. So I have to say for the small segment of population of factor nine deficient patients with an inhibitor, this is a breakthrough to control their bleeds. The pluses and minuses, risks and benefits that you weigh when you talk to patients and families, some sense of relief that I've got something in me every day that decreases my rate of bleeding, decreases the uncertainty of my life, and the severity of bleeds is critical to living their best life on a regular basis in terms of the RNA disruptive agent that's in clinical trial targeting antithrombin, that agent has a very long half-life. Now, the good thing is there is antithrombin concentrate that you can utilize to replace a patient should they have a problem. But the good thing about the anti-TFBI that's in clinical study is it's administered every day and it has a short half-life. So there's a pros and cons there. I fully agree. It's clear. The B patients with inhibitors, that we need something and they're good options we hope to come. Also extensively reviewed in episode two is gene therapy. Two decades of basic research and several recent clinical trials have turned the long-awaited hope of gene therapy for both haemophilia A and B into a reality. Brian Amani. We're aware that there are several phase three clinical trials now for haemophilia B and haemophilia B gene therapy is well advanced. In fact, if you look at the phase three data, it does look very encouraging that you're probably looking at a duration of expression of perhaps 10 years or maybe even more. And you're looking at very significant factor expression with less variability than in factor eight gene therapy. Professor Astermark. The data looks quite good actually and even maybe more straightforward than A because personally I think that to treat the patient with gene therapy is different if you are A and B once again coming to difference between the diseases diseases different cells etc. What Brian and Professor Astermark are alluding to is the more attractive features of factor 9 over factor 8 for gene therapists. This includes how the functional copy of the gene or transgene is small enough to fit into modified viruses such as AAV also known as vectors, basically the transportation vehicle of the transgene to the host cell, which for haemophilia is the hepatocyte or liver cell. Whereas the packaging capacity appears to be incompatible with factor VIII, therefore potentially limiting the level of factor expression and durability, or the longevity, of the therapeutic effect, as evidenced by the trial data. Another advantage of factor IX over factor VIII, as it relates to gene therapy, connects to what Dr. Shapiro raised in the beginning, 
that factor IX is among other tissues made in hepatocytes in the liver, whereas factor VIII is synthesized in the endothelial cells, which form a single cell layer that lines all blood vessels and regulates exchanges between the bloodstream and the surrounding tissues. When you do gene therapy, you're targeting the liver. So in factor IX, when you do gene therapy, you're targeting an organ that normally produces that protein. In factor VIII, when you do gene therapy, you're targeting an organ that does not normally produce it. And there can be issues. I don't know what the absolute contributing factors are to some declining levels we've seen in patients with gene therapy with factor VIII, but that may contribute as well. What about the haemophilia B population? affected by an inhibitor. Where do they stand with gene therapy? Professor Astermark again. We know that uh, patients having had inhibitors or in the risk of having inhibitors, they have mainly been excluded from gene therapy trials. This is also an area for the future to understand because in some way, the best thing that can happen for a patient's with inhibitor where you want to have a continuous exposure to eradicate the immune response, that would be gene therapy to continuously produce it. The problem is, of course, if you have hemophilia B and if you are in the risk of having some kind of these more severe complications that we have mentioned, that is a tricky thing. There are studies now in hemophilia A and gene therapy. I would love to understand the biology more here and I hope to see in the future, but I think it will take some time before we see hemophilia B patients with inhibitor risk on gene therapy because you're afraid what they can run into. So here, once again, we need to understand more and we have a lot of more research to do. Gene therapy will not be for everyone. There is a lot of patients excluded. There will be a huge proportion of hemophilia B patients that will definitely not be able to get gene therapy at all and don't want it. But then there will be, of course, patients that are eligible for gene therapy and also would like to go for it. The regulatory approval of new drugs by the likes of the Food and Drug Administration in the US and the European Medicines Agency is a long and complex process. Even when a product is granted market authorization based on the safety and efficacy data, this shouldn't be considered an immediate synonym of therapy availability to patients. In Europe, for example, after regulatory approval, health technologies are assessed for their value with subsequent or parallel pricing and reimbursement negotiations across different member states. In the case of gene therapy, this aspect is of particular importance, considering the significant budget impact in health systems that these one-time technologies may elicit. Then, where gene therapy does become available, in the instance of haemophilia, there will be added nuances and intricacies with patient consent to ensure the rights and interests of the individual and those of their family are being protected, considering the irreversible nature of such treatment. Brian Amani breaks this down. We're looking at a situation where factor 9 gene therapy is probably going to be licensed in the next six months. Obviously, there will be a lot of work to be done in terms of not just the licensing and looking at the data, but also economically and payment models and whether or not countries will have access to this therapy. But we have a national system in Ireland where we have selected the treatment for the entire country through a procurement system. Now, clearly, that's not going to happen with gene therapy. You're not going to be able to say, and you wouldn't want to say, we're going to switch a whole population of gene therapy or we're not. It would have to be an individual decision. But that individual decision, we're adamant that has to be a well-informed decision with the haemophilia B patient population in terms of preparing them for the possibility of gene therapy as a treatment option. 
unlike any other therapy, this is not a therapy where a patient will go into a doctor and the doctor will say, I'm going to give you gene therapy. I think you do well on this. It has to be a very informed decision, which has to be based on several consultations with the clinician and a clear understanding of what gene therapy is and what it is not and what the potential benefits are and the potential risks and a clear understanding for each individual of what their expectations are and what their decision drivers are. So they'll need to ask not just do I want this therapy, it's why do I want this therapy? What are my aims and objectives for my life, for my career, for my quality of life? We will need to look at significant education programs for people with hemophilia, including publications, websites, social media, infographics, meetings, workshops. We're doing a workshop in October for members on this. That'll be the second one we've done. We'll take an individual and collective education approach. In Ireland, we will try and so far as we can to ensure that all decisions are well considered. We see our part of our role is to prepare the person with haemophilia to have those detailed discussions with the centre director who may be in a position to prescribe gene therapy for them from carefully selected centres with clinicians who really know their gene therapy and from patients who are well informed who have thought through all the ramifications. There also needs to be very clear collaboration between the patient organisations and the clinicians. I think, in fact, we will steer, steer away from using the term cure. It is a potentially transformative therapy over a very significant period of time. But whether or not it will be a cure which will last for a lifetime, it is far too soon to say. Not only is Brian playing a key role in the advocacy and policy effort in his native island, he is also a recipient of gene therapy himself. The first in the country, in fact. Two years ago, I started participating in a gene therapy clinical trial. I've run the entire gamut of treatment options from no treatment to plasma right through to gene therapy. To hear more about Brian's personal experience of being dosed with factor 9 gene therapy, please head over to the Bloodstream podcast, also part of the Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited family, where Brian was interviewed by hosts Patrick Lynch and Amy Board in April of this year. You can find the link in the notes of this episode from whichever podcast platform you're listening from. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. In February of 1904, the same year as Prince Alexei's birth, the Russo-Japanese War was ignited, caused by Russian and Japanese imperialistic expansionism in the Far East. The military conflict, lasting 18 months, caused humiliating defeats on Russia at land and sea. News of the defeat led to social and political unrest against Tsarism in Russia, culminating in the first Russian Revolution in 1905. Worker strikes and protests forced Nicholas II to make certain guarantees to the Russian people, known as the October Manifesto, including the establishment of Russia's maiden parliament called the Duma, that's still in place today. The 1905 revolution was a dress rehearsal for what was to come over a decade later, during which time the political tendencies in the working class movement and leftist revolutionaries of the Bolshevik party, headed by one Vladimir Lenin, 
were forged. As for Rasputin, the more he became better known and closely associated with the Tsars, the greater the public's restlessness. Many Russian citizens had the same fears of Rasputin's influence over their rulers, as did the church, the Duma, and the aristocracy. With the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, the Tsar saw a way to bring glory and prosperity back to Russia, principally by taking personal command of the army and heading to the front line himself. With Alexandra left in charge at home, a power vacuum was created, which Rasputin capitalised on. Stories began circulating that Russia was under the full control of Rasputin. For a brief period after the October Manifesto in 1905, Russian people had hope for a better future. Yet broken promises, bloody conflicts, poverty and alienation from the Tsars destroyed any confidence in their rulers. Disillusioned and suffering, they could not understand why this renegade peasant appeared as if he ran the country. By the end of 1916, the war had taken its toll and the demoralisation of the nation and the army was complete. The Tsar offends the nation by what he allowed to go on in the palace, wrote one politician. Having survived prior assassination attempts, on 30th of December 1916, a group of conspirators known to the Tsar resolved to kill Rasputin, and he was shot point-blank in the stomach. As reported by Alexei's tutor, Per Gilliard, The Tsarina's grief was inconsolable. Her idol had been shattered. He, who alone could save her son, had been slain. A mere ten weeks later, on February 22, 1917, a wage dispute at a giant metal factory in St. Petersburg sparked a mass movement of striking workers, supported by mutinying troops and sailors. On February 23rd, the International Women's Day protesters flowed over into city-wide demonstrations. Slogans demanding higher wages were soon replaced by ones demanding bread, down with the autocracy and down with the war. Nicholas declared martial law and sent a single battalion to the capital, unaware that the 100,000-strong garrison had joined the revolt. A provisional government was soon called into office and demanded that the Tsar step down in favour of his son, Prince Alexei, with his brother, Grand Duke Michael, as regent. Nicholas consulted his doctor immediately on Alexei's condition. The doctor reminded him of the incurable nature of the 13-year-old's haemophilia and that the boy would forever be subject to any bleeding event. The deposed Tsar began to realise that he and Alexandra might well be exiled, separating them indefinitely from the young and vulnerable Alexei, who was the centre of their lives. At 9pm the same day, Nicholas wrote an abdication paper with the words Not wishing to part with our dear son, we hand over our inheritance to my brother, the Grand Duke Mikhail. Realising that his position was hopeless, Michael abdicated after only one meeting with his ministers. The 300-year-old Romanov dynasty was at an end. But the story of Alexei doesn't finish there. As 1917 progressed, the economic dislocation within Russia worsened. The provisional government refused to end the war, and so, army deserters drifted back to their homes in droves, taking radical ideals within the army to the countryside. The seeds were being sown for the victory of Bolshevism. 
In October, the Bolsheviks organised and supported the working classes to finally take power from the provisional government. The October insurrection was in fact instigated and led by Marxist revolutionary Leon Trotsky, even though Lenin was officially recognised as the leader of the revolution. When opening the October Congress of Soviets, a name given to councils of workers after the 1905 revolution, Lenin said very simply, Comrades, we will now proceed to construct the socialist order. By 1918, civil war had erupted. On July 16th, the anti-Bolshevik White Army was approaching the city of Yekaterinburg, where the Romanov family had been moved to after the October Revolution. Out of fear that the White Army would liberate the family, the Bolshevik government authorised their execution. The four daughters watched their parents and Alexei shot before being brutally murdered themselves. Stalinism eventually triumphed in 1928 and ultimately led to its fall in the popular revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe and subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Before long, a former Soviet intelligence officer named Vladimir Putin would take power of the now Russian Federation. His desire to reclaim Russia's superpower status under the auspices of Tsarist principles has contributed to the invasion of neighbouring Ukraine and threats of nuclear attacks. Let's be in no doubt that Alexei's Haemophilia B and ill health was the catalyst for the removal of the Russian monarchy, which redefined the future of Russia and the global political order as we know it. As we look to draw this episode to a close, there's only one real question remaining. Dr. Dimichele, take it away. Is haemophilia B, haemophilia A's identical or fraternal twin? Well, I'll start and then Jan, you can answer. I think there are two children who were born together who look alike and you need genetic testing and more data to know their differences. And to me, I would say that even though it was a really nice answer from Amy, I would say, to me, they are not identical. Agree. Remember that? What was that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? What was that? Twins? Yeah. It was twins. Yeah. I don't know which one factor eight deficiency is. Very well done. Very well done. to be, Jan? Danny DeVito or Arnold Schwarzenegger? Jan says American culture's bonkers. I don't want it to be either one of them. That's a wrap for the Global Haemophilia Report. Thank you for joining us on our historical and evidence-based journey through the last Russian imperial family and the research and care for people living with haemophilia B. We would like to say a big thank you to this episode's brilliant guests in order of appearance. Brian Amani, Professor Jan Ustermark, Dr. Amy Shapiro, Kathleen Schnur, and Dr. Bethany samuelson Bauer. Also, particular recognition goes to Professor Astermark and Dr. Shapiro for being co-advisors to this episode. Thank you to the Global Haemophilia Report Senior Advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKellay, who we also heard in this episode, and to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. For a list of links to the reference research, organisations and other aspects to do with Haemophilia B, please take a look at the programme notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. 
To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Haemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find the Global Haemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corniluck, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. My name is Lawrence Willard, and you've been listening to the Global Haemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.